0: All right, Matthew 19, 26. How many of you love the Lord? Say amen. Amen. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is what? Impossible. Say it with me. But with God. Everybody say, but God. But with God, everything is what? Our message text for this morning is from Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Reading from the New Living Translation, it says, I sank down. Everybody say, down. That's going to be important in a minute. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. Read with me now. Here we go. But you, O oh Lord, my... Everybody say, but God. But you, O oh Lord, my God, what? Snatched me from the jaws of death. Read it again. Here we go. But you, but you, O oh Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. One thing that I want to bring to you this morning through this message is that God is in control and that means that I am not. Say that with me. God is in control and that means that I am not. Look at your neighbor and say, Neighbor, God is in control and you ain't. Say it one more time. God is in control and that means that I am not. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Thank you today for your amazing blessings that you poured out upon us. We pause today and remember the people who've buried friends and loved ones in Dayton and in El Paso. We cry out and we beg you, God, for revival in this nation. Raise up leaders, men and women that can be statesmen and can reach across the aisle and break this disgusting partisan spirit. Grant wisdom to our commander-in-chief. Let him have some wisdom in what he tweets. We pray, O Lord, that you would protect the people of this country, Lord, that you would be with and comfort those who are burying family members. But our hearts are broken every time this happens, and it's happened so much, we've literally become numb to it and become desensitized to it. We need you to move. We're desperate. We cry out to you and ask you for guidance. We cry out to you and ask you for courage to speak to power. We ask you, O Lord, for a revival of love, that there could be the true spirit of what we were taught In Sunday school, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in your sight. God, forgive us for the stupidity of racism in this nation. Break the back of that demonic ideology. Forgive us when any of us have thought we were superior or any kind of supremacy in any kind of way. God, I ask you that we would not look to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue For our salvation, but we would look up to the throne of God and see Jesus seated on the throne and sovereign and in control. We desperately, we desperately need you, Jesus. Help us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is one of the short prophets. When I say short, I don't mean stature. Little four foot eight guy. I'm talking about a short book. The Old Testament is divided into law, psalms, and prophets, and the prophets are in two groups, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets, major because of the length of the book, Isaiah 66 chapters, Jeremiah a little less, Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, what, 48 chapters? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, 12 chapters. So those are the five five major prophets. And then you've got 12 minor ones, 12 little guys. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Got it right that time. So Jonah's like number five in that bunch. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah. Everybody say Jonah. Jonah is this amazing story that you remember from Bible school or maybe Sunday school. And you remember the flannel graph? You know, we were taught that it's a whale that that swallowed Jonah. And the Bible doesn't say whale, it just says a great fish. The likelihood is it probably is. Long before the days when uh, the Internet would give us the substantiation for a story like this, there was a guy who actually traveled in a carnival and was seen as an oddity who had been swallowed by a whale and vomited up days later and was literally, the hair was gone from him. He was bleached. Clothing was bleached white. Uh, It it was a true story of an individual that was saved a couple of days later, had been in the belly of the whale and the gastric juices had just taken all the hair off of his body and he had somehow been able to survive and the, the whale vomited him up on the beach. And so the story of Jonah is not an impossibility. This morning, if you only believe it's a parable, I'm I'm okay with that. I personally believe that it's a literal uh, account. Jesus believed it was a literal account because he refers to it, and he said, you guys ask for a sign, then I will remind you of the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days and nights in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man be, and then he will be raised to life. He's talking about literally being the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That was what Jesus would do. He would prophetically fulfill the type, the the prophetic type, the symbol of what Jonah was. Jesus would be the antitype. He would be the fulfillment of that prophetic picture. One thing, God is in control, that means that I am not. And in Jonah, we see the very first principle, the, the point that I want to make, is the lure of Tarshish. Tarshish is that amazing vacation location that the travel agents have these these glorious brochures of beautiful people and interesting locations and amazing weather and little coconut drinks with umbrellas in them. And the opportunity to do really wonderful things and the excitement of an exotic place. Tarshish is spoken of in the Bible as that place that is filled with all of the wonderful imports and exports of the rest of the world. The the, the ships from around the world come in and out of Tarshish, delivering the wares of the the rest of the world. And so Jonah is a reluctant prophet. He's an angry prophet. In, in In some ways he reminds me of the American church, the evangelical church that does not know what to do with All the foreigners. And the response that we have many times to a commander-in-chief that tweets foolish things and lets crowds say, send them back, and whipping up all of the, the animosity that people have. Jonah was xenophobic. He didn't like foreigners. He was a nationalist. He was all about making Israel great again. Jonah... Loved God, but he didn't want to do what God called him to do. And the Bible opens in Jonah chapter 1. The whole book is only 48 verses. There are 17 verses in Jonah 1, and there are 10 verses in Jonah 2, and 10 in Jonah 3, and there are 11 in Jonah 4. And so 48 verses, it's a short book, really quick, that I would encourage you to read when you have an opportunity to read and to see the whole story. I wish that I could read it all to you, but time does not permit If we were really to give this the treatment that it needs, Jonah is a series, at least four messages, one per chapter, because it's interesting how the events fall and the circumstances change from one chapter to the next. I do want to take time to at least get chapter one, so I'm going to comment as I go. Jonah chapter one is the lure of Tarshish. Listen, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. He says, get up and go. Everybody say, get up and go. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Israel is going to fall captive to the Assyrians in 722. There has already been a great deal of mistreatment. There is a naturally substantiated hatred between some of the Israelites and the Assyrians because of what the Assyrians have done to them. But let's remember that we now need to have a New Testament understanding of who our enemy is. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 and he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not a skin color. Your enemy is not a foreign language. Your enemy is not a person who doesn't talk like you or look like you or live like you or comes from a different culture. Your enemy and my enemy as Christians is the the very sponsorship of the pit of hell that motivates people to do evil things. We don't wrestle against people. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are not other nationalities. Our enemies are not foreigners. Our enemies are ideas that motivate people to do things that they shouldn't do. And guess what? Americans do that. Americans have crazy ideas that make them do evil things. Our enemy. We need to recognize, and I, I just want to say this, I am a conservative both politically and biblically. I am a patriot. I am a flag-waving, God-bless-America-singing, uh, veteran-honoring patriot. But I want to tell you this right now. I am a Christian before I am an American because America may rise or it may fall. But I'm going to tell you the one I serve is not going to fall off the throne. I am a Christian before I am an American. And would to God the church of Jesus Christ that's drunk on Fox News these days, at least the white evangelical branch is. Or maybe you're more leaning toward the left side and the... the the partisanship that leans to that side. And I'm not here taking sides this morning. Let me tell you something. When Jesus comes back, honey, He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. And He already right now is sitting on the throne in control. God, help us of this partisan spirit. Let me just say to you right now, too many times as Christians especially the white evangelicals want to identify with an elephant and my black brothers and sisters want to identify with the donkey. And you may walk into the voting booth and you may pull the lever and you may vote the donkey or you may walk in there and vote the elephant. But listen, as a Christian, you're not either party. You're the party of the Lamb. Somebody wake up in the house this morning. Don't forget who you are. You're not a jackass and you're not a big elephant. You You are the Lamb. You're party of the Lamb of God. Go get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Get this, selective obedience is disobedience. Selective obedience is disobedience. When I partially fulfill the commandment of God, I am breaking the commandment of God. Jonah got up and he went, he got up to go, but he went in the complete opposite direction of what God called him to do. Okay, God, I hear your word, I'm going to go, but I'm going to pick where I end up. How many of you know that's what we all do? We've been doing it since the Garden of Eden. No, no, thank you, I'll call the shots, God. I'll be God in my own life. I'll make the decisions, I'll obey you and I'll go, but I'm going to go where I want to, not where you want me to go. Selective obedience is disobedience, folks. Y'all don't shout me down in here. Verse 3, but Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. The King James says, running from the presence of the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa and where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Tarshish is a media creation. It's, It's Fiji, it's Tahiti, it's Hawaii. Tarshish in Scripture is on the coast of Spain. So the prophet... Jonah is leaving Israel, and instead of heading into Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, to preach the judgment of God and say, repent, or in 40 days you're going to be destroyed, he goes down and books passage on a ship to head in the opposite direction across the Mediterranean Sea over to Spain. I want to see the pretty ladies. I want a drink with an umbrella in it. I want to chill and have a good time, and I want to do what I want to on my time, and I'm going to do it on my terms. And selective obedience is disobedience. God says, get up and go. Okay, I'll go. But he said, get up and go to Nineveh. And when we do the opposite of what God says, we're not obeying God. We're walking in disobedience. Somebody say amen. When you run from God, the only way you can go is down. First of all, let me just tell you, there's no place on the planet where you can get away from him because the psalmist David said in Psalm 139, even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. He's talking about the grave in Sheol. So there's no place you can run from God because if actually if you run from God, you're going to eventually run right smack into God. Come on, somebody. I always say that to parents that are concerned about a. Uh, a, a rebellious child, a pray for my child. He's running from God. I said, well, just keep praying for him because he's going to run right smack into him before it's over with. Because you can't outrun God. You can't run from God. But when you try to run from God, the only way you can go is down. The scripture says he went down to Joppa. He went down to the port. He went down and found a ship. And when he bought passage and booked passage on the ship, he went down into the ship, down into the hold. Everybody say, Jonah's going down. When you run from God, the only direction you're going to go, baby, is down. And God wants to bring you up. And when you obey God, He'll pay you a ticket. But when you go the opposite direction, you're going to have to pay your own fare. (laughs) Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods, capital G, For help, and he threw the cargo overboard to lighten your ship. How many of you know nothing reveals your desperation and lack of truck control like going through a storm of trouble? And stuff that you thought you couldn't do without, that you've been paying a monthly storage fee for... All of a sudden, you can lighten the load. You can start throwing cargo overboard that you didn't, you thought you had to have. But when you know that for, to, in order to make it, to get through this storm and the ship not be torn apart, it's amazing how folk can all, start unloading all kinds of stuff. There's some folk in the room need to unload some habits, and somebody else needs to unload some attitudes, and somebody else needs to let go of some sin in your lives. Unload, unload the cargo, throw it overboard. Everyone's calling on his God, little G, except for Jonah. He's down in the hold of the ship, asleep. The captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to you and sp- spare our lives. The crew cast lots to see who it was, and Jonah's the culprit, and they said, why has this awful storm happened to us? And Jonah's the one that draws the lot, and they realize that that they're seeing that he's the cause of it. And they said, what do you do? What country are you from? What nationality are you? And he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. All the sailors are terrified because they remembered him saying that he was running from the presence of the Lord. Since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked, what should we do to... For, to you to stop this storm. Jonah basically says, throw me overboard, and they wouldn't do that. They rowed as hard as they could because they didn't want to hurt an innocent man. But they knew that they were on board with somebody that God was after. Some of you are on board a ship right now, and there's a storm in your life, and it's because somebody on board with you is running from God. Come on, somebody. You need to look around and go, is it me? Am I selectively obeying God, which means I'm really disobeying God? Am I in a ship in a storm hazarding the lives of other people because I'm walking in my own selective obedience? They cried out to the Lord. They pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. They picked Jonah up and they threw him over the side of the ship. And it says, immediately the storm stopped at once. In verse 16, the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. Verse 17, I love it. It leads right into the second chapter. It says, Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish. Now the whole point of this whole story, these four chapters, these quick 48 verses, is that God is in control. And that means what? I am not. Say it with me. God is in control. And that means I am not. But the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Point number two. Booking your stay at the fish hotel. Guess what? God has a spiritualexpedia.com, and when you try to book passage in the opposite direction of His will, He will arrange for a fish. He'll give you three days and three nights, all expenses paid in the fish hotel. And guess what the fish does? It just takes Jonah down further than he had ever been before. And Jonah 2 opens up and it says, The Lord, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. Now you talk about desperation. You get thrown overboard and then gulp. All of a sudden, you're swimming in, in stuff that Louisiana hot sauce can't touch. The hot gastric juices of a whale, and here's the hair, and your head, your head is wrapped in seaweed, and you're just about in a cuss. Because you know God called you to do something, and you made the choice of getting up and going, but you went the opposite direction, trying to run from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah starts a cry of desperation, a prayer of desperation. And that's what a storm does for you, and a a stay in a fish hotel. What is the fish hotel? It's a problem that you can't refinance, that you can't, out of your own ingenuity, fix it or manipulate it or cause people to get in line or circumstances to change. It's where you are crying out from the depths going, God, I need you to show up in my life and I'm desperate. I'm desperate for you, oh God, and I need you to show up and show out. He says... I cried out to the Lord in great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. He's describing how desperate he is. Verse 4, hear the audacity of this guy. Look what he says. He says, then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence. This dude was running from the presence of God, but now in the middle of captivity... In his stay in the fish hotel, he has the audacity to say, God, you've driven me from your presence. Isn't it crazy how in a moment's time we can fool ourselves to think that it's somebody else's fault for the mess that we're in? I need somebody to say amen to what I just said. Come on. I create the mess I'm in. I make decisions, and my, my decisions have consequences. And for every idea, there is, there is a responsibility. For every word that I idly speak, there's going, to be, there's going to be an accountability for that. For every decision I make, for every action that I take, I bear responsibility. I can't blame God for the mess I'm in. I have made the mess that I'm in. And as soon as I can admit that, God can show up and get me delivered. He's saying, God, you've driven me from your presence. Well, guess what? The fish just took a dive and went lower. And he says, I sank down. Everybody say, down. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains, and I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. And here it comes. Everybody say, but God. When it looks like there ain't no more hope left, and you've sung the last verse to your hope song, and you don't have any ability and there's no strength left, there's, there's absolutely nothing else that you can possibly do and you in desperation cry out to God. That's when you can have a but God moment in your life. It says, but you, O Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death as my life was slipping away. I remembered the Lord my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turned their backs on all God's mercies. He says, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise and I will fulfill all of my vows For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. What does that mean? What does that mean? I can't work my way into it. I can't do enough good things to curry the favor of God. You know, when you are desperate between a rock and a hard place, you're down at the roots of the mountains and you've been swallowed by a great fish and you're in the fish hotel, that's when you realize it's going to take God to rescue me. It's going to take God to save me. It's going to take God to set me free. I can't do it myself. Not in my own strength, not in my own power. And in that moment, the Bible says, The Lord ordered the fish. He orders creation. The scripture says, Stormy winds fulfilling His word, Psalm 148. This week we had a storm. I was mowing my backyard, trying to get the backyard finished, and lightnings hitting everywhere. And within a few moments, I'd just put the lawnmower back into the shed, and the rain started. And I had a notice come up on my phone that we'd had glass breakage at the church. And after we were broken into, we installed two new glass, mon- glass breakage monitors. And both of them are, are showing that it's been tripped or glass is broken. And so I jumped in the car immediately and r- drove down here in the rain. Everything's fine. There's no glass broken. I come in the church, though, and you would have thought this was like something out of a Stephen King novel because the lights were flashing on and off. I mean, it was like some demonically inspired scene. And I called Mark Quentin. He came up here and he said, Pastor, this isn't good. He said, this whole room, and you walk in that room, there's a whole wall. I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars of all of this wiring that runs this whole operation, this whole church. And I'm standing there going, God, why do I have to be in a series where I'm preaching on your sovereignty? And lightning strikes our church. Now, if you think I wasn't wrestling this week, going, okay, I just said, well, I know there's a blessing around here somewhere. I just know there's a blessing around here somewhere. It's like that little kid that got a whole sack full of horse poop for Christmas. And he said, oh, my gosh, he's jumping up and down. He said, if there's this much of this stuff, there's got to be a pony around here somewhere. So I'm walking around knee-deep in horse poop this week, and nothing's working. And every one of these fixtures is probably $1,000 or more. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, my God, what are we going to do? Well, we're probably going to have to file a big insurance uh, claim. Well, that's going to drive the rates up, and they're already about as high as granted. used to say as high as a cat's back. And uh, long story short, energy comes out, and we've got this really jacked up, amazing, Mark Quentin came in here and cadillac it and put way more into it than we paid him for. Multiplied hours, $100,000 worth of stuff and time and equipment, way over what we had the contract for, just blessing this church. Three-phase system, we find out that out there at the pole, there's one of the phases has blown, energy comes out, they fix that thing, put the fuse in. Everything in the whole system is working except this front row of stage lights. And so we called in Sound Lab this week, and they came in, and they cast the devil out of all these lights up here. <laughs> Everything's going off and on, and I'm going, okay, we just have a concert Sunday, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and long, long, long story short, we ended up with just a few hundred dollars of damage. The, the, the DVR that runs the camera system that records... You know, when we set the alarm, that was fried. One of the little cameras was fried. So it was just a a few hundred bucks, which literally could have been, y'all, it could have been a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so I just want to say, let's give God some praise. Hallelujah. Not only did God bless Wesley and Scott and Chris Grafton this week at Bellhaven, God bless Pastor Michael and our whole congregation in the fact that we made it through the storm and with... Literally minuscule, minuscule damage. And if you think I wasn't wrestling for a while going, okay, Lord, my confession is that you're working all things together for my good in the name of Jesus. If you think I didn't have some preacherly pastoral pride, God, we just got in this new building. We were down in that godforsaken mall for 27 years. Never had a burglary. They didn't there wasn't anything in there they wanted, I guess. Just get in the new building and a cloud comes up and I thought, well, you know, we are a metal building sitting out in the middle of a bean field. And so I'm just I'm I'm like wrestling. I'm wrestling all week long, going, God, I'm looking. Where is the silver lining in this cloud? Oh Lord, help me, Jesus. And then I had to repent. I had to say, Okay, God, yeah, Pastor Haley, I'm gonna smack her for putting Jonah on me. I'm just teasing. What, what what is this? It's, you know, it's amazing because I'm I'm going to speak to this in just a moment. Let me get through chapter three. So Jonah gets spit out. Can you imagine? He's bleached out, seaweed wrapped around his head. His clothes are white. His his skin is completely white. Hair is gone, and he he's j- dumped out on the beach. And he shows up in Nineveh, and he begins to proclaim the word of the Lord. In forty days, God the he- the God of heaven will destroy this city if you do not repent so Jonah preaches the word. It's three days. The city is so large it takes three days to see it all. And he preaches his first sermon and they respond and repent. And so much so that it gets to the, to the palace of the king. And the king issues an order and an edict. And he says, nobody in this city of 120,000 people is to eat anything. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to put sackcloth and ashes on. We're going to repent before the God of heaven. If so be it, that in His mercy He could show us His goodness and His kindness and not do to this city the destruction that this prophet has declared. And Jonah actually got ticked off that they believed Him and they repented. He didn't want them to repent because they were His enemies. They were different from Him. They spoke a different language. They did bad things to His people and He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites the way white supremacists hate black people. The way Black folk hate white people that have done them wrong. It's quiet in here this morning, but I want to tell you, we've lost the the identity of who we are as the party of the Lamb when we identify with all of this rancor and all of this vituperative, this mudslinging and all of this stuff that we're doing in this nation right now. God, we desperately need a revival of love and the Holy Spirit in this nation. Jonah finally fully obeys. He gets up and goes because the fish dumped him out. And he's declaring the message that God gave him to say. But he fully wants the judgment to come. He wants God to bust them a new one. He wants God to rain down fire from heaven. He wants God to destroy the city. He wants God to wipe them out. He wants wants the Lord to break the teeth of the ungodly and destroy them and let the ground open up and eat them alive. And the very thing he didn't think would happen, did happen. And they repented, and they turned, and because they turned back to God, the Scripture says the Lord showed mercy. And and Jonah was angry about it. This is what I want you to see this morning: is that you never know who your obedience will impact. I want to give that to credit to Pastor Haley. She said, "I'm, I'm I know you don't need it, but I'm going to send you my notes." And this was so good, I said, "I'm going to use that directly, just like she said." You never know how or who your obedience will impact. And when he finally went, he was still a failure because he selectively chose what he was going to do in chapter 1. He went, but he went the opposite direction. Finally, by 3, he gets dumped out on the beach, and he goes and delivers the word, and he obeys God, but he does it with a bad attitude. He doesn't want God to show them any mercy. A whole lot like the American church that has lost the awareness that we're the party of the Lamb that we walk along the side of a Savior that said, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. How do we we deal with all of those red-letter passages in the Bible? Do we just ignore them? Do we we just, in the name of being a proud flag-waving American, just forget that we have a Savior who died for us and showed us how to live and walk in the kingdom of God? Uh, A walk of mercy, a walk of justice, a walk of righteousness, a walk that does not... Quit until we see every one of our brothers being treated properly in the way they should be, whether they're red or yellow or black or white. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give God some praise. (laughs) Let me finish. When God saw that they had done what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is Jonah's illegitimate anger. I think I can probably just read it faster than trying to comment because I think I think it's just so clear verse 1 Jonah 4 this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry you know it's 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 amazing how we 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 plan we calendar we, we, we set goals, we've got five-year goals, we've got two-year goals, we've got 18-month goals, we've got 12-month goals, we've got six, nine, and six, and three months, and we've got 30-day goals, and we've got goals for the end of this week. And then we, we put all these in, we, we're so, we step back and we look at all these plans, and then life happens. And it's amazing how when everything is going the way we want it to, how we never stop to question the sovereignty of God. When things are going great... And, and the bank account is fat, and, and the, the, the spirit in the house is wonderful, and you're feeling like a million bucks, we never stop to question the sovereignty of God. But when something interrupts what I assumed was going to happen, we get angry and we start questioning, God, what's going on? Why, are, you, are you mad at me? What's happening? And we, we forget that God is in control and that I am not. This is verse 2, so he complained to the Lord about it. He said, didn't I say before I I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Y'all, that's in the Old Testament. How is it that we have... Such an outrageous idea of the God of the Old Testament being so filled with anger and so fire-breathing, more like a Greek mythological Zeus on a mountain of Olympus that is angry and has to be fed sacrifices on a regular basis. How do we come up with this idea that is not a picture of the God whose love will extend to a thousand generations? How do we come up with this idea of a God who is just so easily ticked off and so angry? And and yet Jonah himself as a reluctant prophet, as a foreigner hating prophet, said, I knew, I knew, I knew down in my soul that you're a God who's slow to anger and you're you're willing to show mercy. An Old Testament prophet having a picture of what we literally normally see as a New Testament Jesus. A God who is willing to forgive. A God who is merciful and compassionate and slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. God, let the American church get reconnected to the God who we serve which is the God who's willing to give you another chance, the God who's willing to forgive your past and empower you to be a new person right now, a God who is slow to get angry with you. You know, but it's it's crazy how we get so frustrated. We go, God, break the teeth of the ungodly and destroy my enemies. And it's like Jesus looking at the, the sons of thunder, and he says, you guys, he says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. You don't have a clue. Too often the church of Jesus Christ in America is the same way. We've forgotten what spirit we're of. We, 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 want, we want the lion of Judah to roar at our enemies, but we want the lamb of God to visit our house. Are you hearing me this morning? And the fact of the matter is he is both of those things. But we need to learn to be as generous with the lamb, with our enemies, as we are with ourselves. Because really, that person, that people group, that color of skin, that culture, that language is not your enemy, but it's what is motivating people. And maybe a bad spirit is motivating us sometimes. I, I, I'll, just, I'll just be up front and just tell you as a pastor, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have it any easier being a Christian than you do. I get mad, I get frustrated, I get peeved, and then I have to repent Just like I'm asking you this morning. Just like this week I had to say, God, forgive me for doubting you. Thank you for carrying us. Thank you, Lord, that you work in all things together for my good. Come on. Put your hands together. The rest of the story is very, very funny. Because about verse 6, it says, God arranged for a leafy plant to grow. And the plant sprung up, and it says the leaves were so broad that they made a shade for Jonah to sit under. And Jonah was pleased because his discomfort was eased. And the Scripture says he was very grateful for the plant. But the very next verse, it says, but God arranged for a worm. Mm-mm-mm, I'll let you fill in the blank. Those blank worms, I, did, I did, why in the world God made them? What are they for? God arranged for a worm and the worm ate through the stem and the thing withered and died. And the plant falls over. And the very next verse, the Bible says, God sent a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. See, when we're going through difficult times and it's not going as we planned and the change of plans makes us very angry, that's the time we need to back up and check ourselves and go, I am not God, God is God, and I am not in control. Now, Lord, what do you want to do here? what do you want to show me what do you want to demonstrate how do you want to prepare me how do you want to teach me how do you want to stretch me God how 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 do you want to carry me into this next season of my life Lord help me rejoice when the enemy repents because the mercy of God comes and he doesn't send destruction dr. Billy Graham said one time that if America didn't repent that God would owe an apology to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because America has been gravely more sinful than those two cities everywhere. I don't want to see judgment come to this nation. I want the mercy of God. But I'll tell you what, God who sits on the throne is working all things. He's sending a wind. He's preparing a fish. God is raising up a plant. He's sending a worm. He's ordering an east, scorching east wind. And everything, every one of these circumstances that we face and deal with when we're in difficult, tribulation, storms of trouble have everything to do with how we relate to the Lord and especially how we react when he deals with our enemies with mercy. Because enemies are not flesh and blood. They're not people. They're not language groups. They're not foreign nations. But they're things that the demons of hell inspire people to do in the way of evil. This morning, I'm going to tell you right now, in this place, God says to Jonah at the end of that chapter, he says, you didn't do anything. You didn't plant that plant. You didn't water it. You didn't take care of it. It sprang up and it blessed you for a moment. It came quickly and it died quickly. He said, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about this? Which is basically God saying, dude, you need to just shut up and get up. Get up out of your bad attitude. He said, Yet, you're angry about this silly plant. Yet, this great city of Nineveh has 120,000 people who have not heard my word. They've not been given the seed of the gospel, not, just, not even considering the animals, just 120,000 people, he says. And he says, yet, you're not angry about that? And I show mercy, they repent and turn? And So this morning, I just, I just want to take a moment as we close this service. And I just want to say how desperate we are as a nation. I mean, how many, how many more times are we going to have to turn around before we are able to stand up and call out to God as a nation, as a people? I, I, I believe that America is where it is because the church, we, us, have not been what God has called us to be. We have selectively obeyed. We've gone, but we've, we've not gone the direction he's called us to go. Or we've been an angry prophet, or we've been a reluctant people, or we've been a racist people, a prejudiced people, an unfair people. Now, if that's not you, don't take it personally, because the Lord knows. He knows all of our hearts. Look, 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 let's just all recognize that we have been raised in a system that is so bent toward injustice. We're marinated in it. And I acknowledge right now that as much as I try my very best to not be prejudiced or not be racist, I still have to go before God and go, God, help me to see this brother, this sister, the way you see them. How many of you know we need that? The church needs that. We need that. And if anything, we need to demonstrate this. This view of a God who is slow to anger, because my goodness, he should have busted America upside the head a long time ago. Because we were founded in injustice. I know we we have our regular celebrations and we wave the flag and it makes us feel good about where we've come from. And it glosses over and gives us a very one-sided view of history. All kinds of evil things have been done in the name of America the Beautiful. And the quicker we can get real and go, God, I need you. I'm desperate for you. God, our hearts are hurting. We cry out to you as a people, as a nation. Forgive us, O oh Lord, as Victory Church. Let us let us arise and be the beacon of love and light into this community, in the Delta, oh God, to extend the hand to people that, that don't speak our language. Lord, to reach out and to love the people the illegal immigrants that are around us and to love them with the gospel. I'm not here to talk about the politics of all that. I'm just here to talk to you about is the church. This is what we're supposed to do. Don't let us be reluctant Jonas who, who hate folk that are different than us. God forgive us when we've been more motivated by a donkey or by an elephant and we've forgotten that we're the people of the Lamb. I cry out to you and I repent, Lord. I stand as a representative of this church this morning and I ask you to do something in my heart, something new, something fresh. I need a but God moment in my life. If there's anything this morning that has that has been a word that you feel like is made for you, every head's bowed, every eyes closed. If you feel like God